A quick note of thanks to everyone who follows the show on social media. I update Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram throughout the week with articles, pictures, and behind-the-scenes tidbits. And now... It was called The Madhouse on Madison and had the reputation as being the loudest arena in the NBA. But this venue hosted much more than just some of the most memorable sports events in the city's history and had an unusual history behind the scenes as well. Today we're discussing the Chicago Stadium. I'm Tommy Henry and this is the Chicago History Podcast. The venue that would be known as the Chicago Stadium was the brainchild of Patrick T. Harmon, who was born in 1876, the son of Irish immigrants. Patty, as he was known, was one of ten children in the family growing up on Vetter Street in Chicago, later renamed Scott Street. When Patty was just five years old, his father was hurt on the job and unable to work with money tight. Patty and his brothers left school to earn money. By the age of seven, he was peddling papers on the corner of North Avenue and Milwaukee Avenue. When Patty was nine, he and his brother Martin got a contract to snuff out the gaslights in their district. These gaslights, Chicago street lamps before electricity, were extinguished by putting a stick through the hole in the bottom of the gaslight globe, and the two brothers were paid $60 a month, about $1,500 in today's money, to snuff out 900 globes. That's 900 globes every morning. Then they would go sell papers, returning at the end of the day to give their mother the money they collected to help support the family. In case you missed it, Patty was nine years old. These kids had hustle. The next time your kid complains about having to pick up their room, please tell them the story of Patty Harmon. By 16, Patty was operating a dancing club called the Victorian, named by his mother near Noble and Milwaukee Avenue. Dancing, the popular and inexpensive form of amusement at the time, made Harmon money which he parlayed into a roller skating business and a concession business at Riverview Amusement Park. Patty then turned his attention to sports promotion. In 1912, Harmon staged a bike race at Dexter Park Pavilion, a former horse racing track near Halstead and 47th Street by the Union Stockyards. Ever the hustler, Harmon continued to promote dances, even buying a few of his own dance halls. According to Harmon, he got the idea of building the stadium in 1926. By then, he was nearing 50. He had made some money on his own, but more importantly, Patty had some investors willing to back him on this project. Looking for a suitable spot, he and his fellow investors started buying up land on West Madison Street, a pretty rundown area at that time, dotted with slums and tenements that housed Eastern European emigrants. Before long, they had bought a city block and began having the structures demolished. A brief blurb in the Pantograph newspaper in Bloomington, Illinois, in June of 1928 alerted readers to the incorporation by the Secretary of State at Springfield 
of a new company whose purpose was to, quote, erect a great stadium for promoting sporting events of all kinds, end quote. The newspaper also mentioned its stock was divided into 500,000 shares. On October 4, 1928, a crew of riveters drove a golden rivet in a steel beam signifying the launch of work of building the superstructure that would become the Chicago Stadium. Patty Harmon's dream was closer to becoming a reality. Quote, It'll be a grand thing for Chicago, he was known to say. You'll be seeing fights there and bike races and big conventions. People will be coming from all over the country to see the events we'll be putting on. End quote. Situated 18 blocks west of State Street and bounded on the north by Warren Street, east at Wood, south by Madison, and on the west by Lincoln, later renamed Wolcott Street, the building was built using 398 million bricks, 1.75 million face bricks, 3,700 tons of steel, 98,000 feet of one and a quarter inch pipe in the ice plant, and $40,000 worth of electric wire. The roof was supported by 12 trusses, each measuring 266 feet in length, 28 feet in height, and each weighing 95 tons. The inside of the stadium had a triple-layer bowl design, with the upper floors designed to give those in the highest rows a good view, which also meant those upper floors were very, very steep. The entire surface of the main floor could be frozen for hockey or skating in just four hours and defrosted in one hour. The stadium was also the first major arena equipped with an air conditioning system, but it reportedly didn't work very well and created a bit of fog in the building. Four days before the opening of the Chicago Stadium, Patty Harmon spoke to Chicago Daily News reporter Don Maxwell and shared this. Everybody always said before I started anything that it couldn't be done, but Patty did it. For three years I've been trying to build this sports stadium. Twenty times I thought I had everything all set, only to get knocked down. But I kept getting up, and next Thursday night the folks who said I couldn't are invited to come out on West Madison Street and see the building Patty built. As promised on March 28, 1929, the $7 million Chicago Stadium billed at the time as the largest arena in the world, opened. Patty Harmon himself contributed $2.5 million of the construction cost. Chicagoans were eager to see the house that Patty built. The building's Chicago Stadium sign glowed brightly onto Madison Street and Warren Boulevard. The inaugural event, a championship fight between light heavyweight champion Tommy Loughran and his challenger, Mickey Walker, drew 14,554 people, nearly 10,500 fewer than the stadium could hold. Patty Harmon had said the day before that 18,000 tickets had been sold, which may have been some old-timey event hype work, but there appears to have been the anticipation that this bout would bring 20,000 fans. More on that in a moment. Ringside seats sold for $21.60, slightly more than $355 in today's money. And because Chicago, there was plenty of bragging in the press about how the Chicago Stadium had a capacity of 5,000 more 
than New York's Madison Square Garden. Also because Chicago, a fire broke out that inaugural night, starting on the roof of the stadium and shooting toward the sky. Fortunately, an alarm was called in and firemen quickly arrived to extinguish the flames without any injuries. The cause of the fire was never determined. Capacity at the stadium varied depending on the event, but for hockey games and eventually basketball games, 18,000 to 20,000 was the norm. The venue's 3,663 pipe Barton organ, manufactured in 1929 by the Bartola Music Instrument Company of Oshkosh, Wisconsin, was installed in the Chicago Stadium well above the main floor toward the rafters. In his 1932 book, Chicago's Accomplishments and Leaders, author Glenn A. Bishop wrote, Unique in respect to being the world's largest is the stadium organ. In volume of sound, the equivalent of 25 bands of 100 instruments each, or 2,500 orchestral pieces. The great organ plays simultaneously 40 harmonizing snare drums, 16 violins, 12 saxophones, 4 bass drums, 12 flutes, 9 clarinets, 6 trumpets, 7 French horns. More than 240 feet of pipes and 5,000 feet of wire have gone into its making. The range of controlled sound runs all the way from a bird note to a thunderstorm, but its full power has never been tested. On several experimental occasions, its vibrations have shattered electric bulbs. The Chicago Stadium is home to the National Hockey League team, the Chicago Blackhawks from 1929 to 1994, hosting many memorable games, as well as being the site of nine Stanley Cup Finals, four NHL All-Star Games, and the first afternoon game in league history, which occurred on January 20th, 1952. In November of 1929, less than eight months after the stadium's opening, the stadium's board of directors forced Patty Harmon to resign. First-year revenues hurt by the onset of the Great Depression just three months earlier had failed to live up to expectations by investors, and a fall guy was needed. Patty Harmon was out. After his dismissal from the Chicago Stadium in November, Patty Harmon tried his hand at politics, running for the sheriff of Cook County, but was defeated. On July 22, 1930, a little more than a year after the stadium's opening, Patty Harmon, his wife May, and Harmon family friend Dr. E.T. Brand were driving towards Chicago on Northwest Highway between Mount Prospect and Des Plaines, at a high rate of speed around noon when Harmon's car hit a patch of soft dirt on the side of the road and began to slide. Attempting to get back on the highway, Harmon overcorrected, causing the vehicle to turn over. All three were thrown from the car. When passers-by rushed to their aid, Harmon, in great pain, asked, Where is my wife? The three injured parties were taken to Desplaines Hospital, where Harmon later died of his injuries. May Harmon suffered internal injuries and abrasions, and their friend Dr. Brand had a broken pelvis and other internal injuries. They both survived. 
That night, Orville Taylor, a director of the Chicago Stadium, issued the following regarding Harmon's death. Patty possessed three traits, courage, loyalty, and vision, which made him the strong, dynamic, and forceful character that he was. He was essentially a fighter, square, rugged, and erect. He dealt in big figures. Dollars had no special significance. His mind ran in millions. It was this that made him a constructive builder and precluded his being an economical executive. In his death, I feel the loss of a real friend and one of the most interesting characters of my acquaintance. It can truly be recorded of him that he was, at all times, regular. In addition to his widow, Harmon was survived by his four-year-old daughter Patricia and an adopted son named Frank. Patty Harmon's wake was held at the Chicago Stadium, much like his friend Mayor Anton Cermak's wake would be just three years later. Sadly, Harmon died nearly penniless, having invested so much into the stadium. Friends stepped up to cover the cost of his funeral. Petty Harmon's widow, May, later filed for bankruptcy, claiming debts of $92,734, with assets of just $450. $91,000 of those debts was owed to a man named Otto Price, who had loaned the money to Patty Harmon to help build the stadium. $8,000, nearly $135,000 in today's money, was later raised for Harmon's daughter at a boxing benefit at the stadium. We'll be right back. Are you a Caribbean American? Are you looking for a podcast that truly speaks to your culture and identity? Look no further than Carry On Friends, the ultimate destination for all things Caribbean American, Hosted by me, Carrie Ann. Dive deep into topics such as culture, heritage, and everyday life through the unique lens of the Caribbean American experience. You'll walk away feeling more connected to your roots. Follow and listen on Apple Podcasts so you'll never miss an episode of Carry On Friends, the Caribbean American experience. Your Caribbean American community awaits. The Chicago Bears taking a break from their usual venue for home football games at Wrigley Field played a charity game at the Chicago Stadium against the Cardinals on December 15, 1930 in front of 10,000 fans. The Bears scored a safety in the third quarter, winning the game 9-7. The stadium would later host the first NFL playoff game, which featured the Chicago Bears taking on the Portsmouth Ohio Spartans in December of 1932. Wrigley Field was deemed unplayable due to ice buildup, so they moved indoors at Chicago Stadium in front of 12,000 fans. The Chicago Stadium became the go-to spot for political events in the city, including the 1932, 1940, and 1944 Democratic National Conventions and the 1932 and 1944 Republican National Conventions. It was at the 1932 Democratic National Convention at the Chicago Stadium that Franklin Delano Roosevelt gave his New Deal for America speech, promising federal assistance for the millions of Americans hit hard by the Great Depression. 
ice skating exhibitions, dance contests, six-day bicycle races, rodeos, wrestling matches, roller derby, soccer, and circuses were also held at the stadium over its decades of use. In May of 1942, the Chicago Stadium was the site of the gala performance of the Hollywood Victory Caravan, an all-star event to raise money for Army and Navy relief funds and war bonds. Appearing that night included celebs of the day, such as Bob Hope, Bing Crosby, Claudette Colbert, Spencer Tracy, Olivia de Havilland, Cary Grant, Jimmy Cagney, Betty Grable, Edward G. Robinson, Laurel and Hardy, and others. The Hollywood Caravan traveled in a special train over three weeks, playing in 14 cities in what the New York Times called, quote, the most ambitious money-raising project ever staged by the theatrical world, end quote. The performance generated $800,000, nearly $13.8 million in today's money. In the late 1940s and 50s, some of the biggest boxing matches in history were held at the Chicago Stadium, featuring boxers like Rocky Marciano, Sugar Ray Robinson, and Jake LaMotta. In 1967, the NBA team, the Chicago Bulls, began playing basketball at the Chicago Stadium, which they continued to do until the stadium's closing. The previous year, their first in the league, was played at the International Amphitheater. While there had been religious choir concerts and big band performances at the stadium from early on, it was in the late 60s into the 70s when the Chicago Stadium truly rocked. Acts such as Pink Floyd, The Beach Boys, Chicago, The Who, Rolling Stones, Frank Sinatra, Queen, Led Zeppelin, The Bee Gees, ELO with Hall & Oates, Bob Dylan, The Monkees, Aerosmith, Kiss, Eagles with Jackson Brown, and others all performed at Chicago Stadium. Of note, former Beatle Paul McCartney played in Chicago for the first time in 10 years when he and his band Wings played three concerts in 1976 at the Chicago Stadium as part of their Wings Over America tour. Elvis Presley played at the Chicago Stadium three times in the 70s, including his last concert in Chicago in May of 1977. At one show, Elvis performed 23 songs in 64 minutes. The final concert to be held at Chicago Stadium was in March of 1994 with Pearl Jam, Urge, Overkill, and The Frogs. Oh, that blaring horn sound when a goal is scored in an NHL game? You can thank the Blackhawks for that. Blackhawks owner Bill Wirtz liked the sound of the horn on his yacht. Mm-hmm. So much that during the 1973 Stanley Cup Final against Montreal, he had it installed at Chicago Stadium. In 1992, the Chicago Bulls, led by Coach Phil Jackson and MVP Michael Jordan, won their second of three straight NBA titles in Game 6 of the NBA Finals against the Portland Trailblazers. This would be the only time the Bulls clinched the championship while playing at the Chicago Stadium. The Bulls would go on to do it twice more at the new United Center in 1996 and in 1997. 
In the early 90s, with the aging venue showing signs of wear and potential dollar signs in the eyes of those that owned it, the remaining days of the Chicago Stadium were limited. In early February 1995, a wrecking ball outside the Chicago Stadium began to swing, striking the 66-year-old building and scattering bricks to the ground below. Bill Wirtz, who was born the same year the stadium opened and whose family had owned the building since 1936, was on hand to watch. Quote, I said I wouldn't be here, but I wanted to. It's like going through a wake, but it has to be. Wirtz choked back tears and continued, it just could not survive 2000 and beyond, end quote. One fan at the start of the demolition held a sign that read, The Old Barn, the Sistine Chapel of Sports, thanks for the memories. As for that amazing Barton organ, there's a story behind that as well. There were approximately 6,000 theater organs built to accompany a variety of stage shows and movies, But with the advent of sound film, the need for the organs diminished quickly. Many were scrapped, although some, like the one at the Chicago Stadium, continued to be used. After the Chicago Stadium closed, the organ was dismantled into 40,000 pieces and moved, a process that took three months and required seven semis. The then 65-year-old 70-ton pipe organ was purchased by Bob Rapolo, an organ collector and owner of a lounge-slash-dance hall in suburban Lyons, Illinois, called the 19th Hole. Rapolo's hope, according to a December 1994 Chicago Tribune article, was to find a venue that held at least 18,000 people where the organ could be appreciated. The Barton organ was put into storage in Arizona, where it was significantly damaged in a fire. Fortunately, the organ was not only saved, but at a reported cost of $100,000 to refurbish it and add some modernization. It is now housed in the late Las Vegas casino owner Phil Maloof's house in Nevada. Phil Maloof began collecting theater organs in 1979 and also owned the organ from Chicago's Sheridan Theater, the Kimball organ from the Roxy Theater in New York, and the Grand Barton Theater organ from the Granada Theater in Kansas City. The land on which the largest sports arena in the world opened in 1929 is now a parking lot for the United Center, the -the state-of-the-art successor to the Chicago Stadium, which cost $176 million and has such modern amenities as luxury suites. The Chicago Blackhawks and the Chicago Bulls continue to play in the new facility. There is a plaque in the pavement on the north side of the United Center that reads, Chicago Stadium, 1929-1994, to Remember the Roar. for listening to today's episode about the Chicago Stadium. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. I have a brief list of links to books as well as other related items in the show's notes as well as on the Chicago History Podcast website at chicagohistorypod.com if you or someone you know is a history nerd like me who would like to learn more. 
Anything ordered through those links, not just the items listed, may earn a small commission for the podcast and help offset production costs at no additional cost to you. As always, if you have questions about anything covered today, anything to add or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thank you, John. He can be found at JKS on Instagram or via email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.